So do I have problems with Morningstar's forecast for the stock and bond market? Yes. And the only way to be able to verify if I'm right or if they're right is in 10 years. So I could just flatly say they're wrong and uh, I'll back that up with um, some kind of monetary thing that nobody's ever going to look back 10 years. Um, I would say they're, they're wrong, but they're wrong in a way that I kind of agree with and that it's good to set your expectations low. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Sounds so ominous when I say it that way. Welcome to another exciting sort of, kind of, hopefully, maybe, episode of the Personal Wealth Coach. See all my caveats on there. We try to give true information, and I'm not sure. I was quoted in an email to me from the radio program. And I read it and I went, how could that possibly be interesting to anyone? An economist speaking eco-jumble mumble. Uh, But evidently, you guys seem to like us. So this is Jake McClure. Uh, Jeff is out uh, in on the West Coast experiencing a different kind of heat wave. They call it a heat wave there. We just call it normal here. Uh, so he didn't get to go and enjoy cooler weather, but he did get to go and enjoy uh, a different coast. And he's getting to give us some anecdotal economics information. We'll be covering that in a bit. But before we get any further, so the, the, the ball duo is a ball single this week. I will need help from you in emails and so on, if you can provide it. I somehow think I can stagger through the program on my own. I'll do my best. Okay, so let's give some disclosures. I just said this is an economics program. Um, It's called The Personal Wealth Coach. And The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of this program. It's also the name of a business. But it's not to be confused with the business. The business is a fiduciary investment advisory firm that's registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission and gives only fiduciary advice. Where what we're doing on the radio, what I'm doing on the radio this week, is purely educational. Now, what's the difference between education and fiduciary? Well, fiduciary is in the best interest of the client. That means I have to know you all, and I can't. So this is an informational, educational program. Hopefully, I'm providing you with information throughout this to make better decisions throughout the week and the rest of your lives, maybe, if that doesn't give myself too big a head. All right, so um, let's see. The information that we're giving on this radio program, and I have to get this correctly, or all the way over on the West Coast, uh, Elder Baldy will roll over in his bed because it is two hours earlier there. Hopefully he's still in bed on his vacation at 8.09 a.m. The information that we uh, distribute in this program comes from sources that we deem to be reliable. I got to say this next part exactly the way he he said it. Otherwise, he gets finicky. It isn't that it's less accurate. It's just that he wants it to be in exactly this verbiage. You guys all know this. The information that we get comes from sources that we deem to be reliable, but we give no warranty or guarantee. Like you could give both, but anyway. Uh, as to the accuracy or completeness. So it could be accurate and incomplete or 
or complete and inaccurate huh, um, of the information that we give. We actually do try to get from really good sources. You guys, it, those of you that have been listening for a while know that, but we always throw that in there just because, um, because why not? And, and why not throw legalese in at any given point? We also do not pay for this radio program. At the same time, we're not paid to do the radio program. We do advertise on KTEM, which is the, the station that we're doing. If you're podcast listening, um, you wouldn't know this. Uh, but we do advertise on KTEM, but we advertise for the radio program rather than for the business. KTEM, um, Town Square Media, also advertises for the radio program rather than for the business. So all that's trying to say is that we've been trying to do this as an educational give back to the community for a long time. Do we get some benefit from it? Absolutely. Uh, and that's, this is full disclosure. This is over in the realm of fiduciary stuff, but I think it's important. Our clients listen to this. Um, potential clients listen to this. If they hear us sounding sort of semi-knowledgeable, then they're more inclined to do business with us. But uh, do we get droves of cash from it? Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, this is, this is one of those things that's really hard to measure a direct benefit to us. We do get clients that come to us that have been listening to the radio show for years and years and years. So that's a benefit. But what I have said before is pretty accurate here. If you've got $15 million to invest, it's pretty likely that you're not going to make the decision because you liked me on the radio. There's a bit more due diligence that takes place than that. So really, this is us giving back. Let me see. Did I miss anything? Objects in the rearview mirror. Wait, is that the meatloaf song or what it actually says there? Um, I just dated a lot of you who got that reference. If you didn't get the reference, you're young or much older. All right. So this is Jake McClure, and I am going to launch into this week's program minus Jeff McClure. Um, and I'm going to do it the way we always do. Every week we start with the market. What happened in the stock market this week? The S&P 500, that's the index that is probably most highly followed. And we can have a whole conversation about what an index is and all that stuff later. But uh, it closed out the week at another record, 4468, 4,468.00. It's pretty strange for it to end on a round number, even if it's not completely round. Uh, it's up and down pattern all through the week, going up, going down, going up, going down. It eked out a weekly gain of 0.71%. That small rise gave it a year-to-date gain of 18.95%. That is correct. Um, it is currently August 14th, and in those seven and a half months that have led to here, the S&P 500 is up nearly 19%. All right, so what caused all the bumpiness in the market this week? Uh, buying and selling, that's the simplest answer. But what caused the buying and selling? It was skirmishes between the bears who fear, and the bears are the negative side. I've had some people ask about what's the difference between a bear and a bull. Uh, and, and I've got a really good historical context for that. I'll, I'll give it to you after we do this bit of news. Um, the bears are in a great deal of fear that the Fed's going to raise rates too soon. Or that the Delta variant of COVID will wreak, uh, uh, wreck the recovery, or that inflation's going to take off. So bears that are afraid of the Fed, and bears that are afraid of inflation, the Fed fights inflation. 
Bears are, by definition, of pessimistic about all things. Okay. And uh, the other side, the Bulls, who are continuing to feast on the uh, earnings that are coming out. Um, it's all, I mean, across the SPX, that's the, the symbol for the S&P 500 that we use for quotes and so on. Um, the earnings report, uh, way, way across the board, above way above the average poster is is exceeding expectations in earnings uh for this last quarter and the quarter before that and the ceos of those companies are largely in consensus they think that good times will continue they're projecting at least for the next two quarters continued strong growth in earnings and this isn't because they think they're going to get new business coming up they already have enough business, uh, by and large, in orders and pre-orders for them to project greater earnings into the future. And we'll talk about why orders and pre-orders are taking long enough to deliver that we can project earnings off of them. Because two years ago, this was not a thing. We had an on-time delivery uh, from you order, it got there. It, you didn't have a stretch into the next quarter profitability based on your order because you were receiving it quickly. Uh, anybody that's ordered anything lately realizes things take a bit longer to get to you today than they did two years ago. So we'll talk about that some more later. Um, the mid-cap index, the mid-cap value index that we watch, because if you've listened to us for very long, you realize that uh, we're big proponents of value, of uh, uh, of companies that are valued based on what they own and what they're producing rather than just expectation of profits in the future. Uh, growth companies have their place, but value companies are worth watching, especially coming out of a recession because they tend to lead the recovery. The CRSP mid-cap value index, that's the one we, we track, uh, it's very sensitive to the health of economic recovery and expansion stuff. Uh, and with the Delta variant where it is, this is where we would expect to see it first. It hit a record on Wednesday as well and largely held the gain, closing out the week up 1.36% uh, and year to date up almost 22%. So the S&P 500 is up almost 19. The mid-cap value index is up almost 22. That's year to date. Uh, the 10-year U.S. Treasury note, the yield on that thing jumped up during the week to about 1.4% midweek before sagging back down to just below 1.3, 1.294. Um, and that drop doesn't seem, I mean, it's we're talking about 0.1% or thereabouts as far as a drop from where it was at the top there. That's a big movement when rates are this low. Uh, it's because there's a real fear that the Delta variant is going to do some damage. We'll talk about that as well. There's a lot of, lot of news to cover. I've also got some emails hanging out there, so we'll get to those as well. And the last part of the market that we're going to cover here is oil. Out in the oil patch, or at least in the commodities trading floor, um, not much happened this week. Uh, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil, that is uh, WTI for those that track that. It's the price that the Americans put on oil be, uh, on our domestic supply rather than uh, the way the rest of the world tracks it, uh, Middle East um, numbers. It, it fell. The price of oil fell by, get this, 0.09%. 
It ended up at 67.93. That's good news, continued good news across the fracking patch that's well into profitability for the vast majority of frackers. Man, that sounds like I'm using sci-fi cuss words on the air here. What the frack are you doing over there? Well, I'm getting some oil. Um, all right, so that's, that's what's happened in the market. Uh, what have we seen kind of across the economy? And I'll get to some of these questions. Supply chain issues are magnifying now. What am I talking about? There's that eco mumbo jumbo speak again. The Delta variant of COVID is hitting hard. And it's hitting hard, particularly in areas that aren't that vaccinated. Um, there's these numbers that are out there. If the country's 70% vaccinated, then we'll have herd immunity and well, the country's not 70% vaccinated. We've got 70% of the country has gotten their first shot. Only about 50% of the country has gotten both shots. Okay. Why am I talking something that's become a political uh, whipping boy these days? The, the, the virus, the vaccine, whether or not to mask. The reason is because it is the single largest impact item on the economy that we can deal with today. Uh, or any day this year or last. There's just absolutely nothing else that comes close to a price of oil, uh, earnings in the in different companies, doesn't matter. Our GDP up or down, it's all going to be determined by our reaction to the virus, whether locking down, whether or not we get vaccinated or not vaccinated, positives or negatives there. If we go a full lockdown, that's a major impact on the economy. Um, not being vaccinated, is the biggest thing because it allows more mutations over a long period of time. If we can get a big vaccination push all over the world and get the thing wiped out, then we don't have to worry about it. It's in our, in our rearview mirror forever. That's, as we have said on this radio program for a year now, that's not going to happen. People are not vaccinating. Uh, and we were saying that this was going to be the case before the vaccine came out, that there's going to be a lot of people that don't get vaccinated, which means that this is going to be a, an annual thing for the rest of us. Uh, that You'll go and get your booster shot thing. And this is not new news. If you've been listening to us, it's coming out all over on the big publications like it's a big event, like, oh, people aren't getting vaccinated. So that means we're going to have to keep getting vaccinated. You could have asked people before if they were going to get vaccinated. In fact, these same publications did ask them before if they were going to get vaccinated. So what is that causing right now? The pockets of places with the least vaccination are getting really, really into hot spots for the virus. Uh, Central Texas local news was just saying that our hospitals that are at, are at 130% capacity. That's not good. That means people will die that shouldn't die, whether it's COVID-related or not. That's a really bad thing. That's bad for the economy. It's bad on a micro scale. It's bad on so many different ways. On a macro scale, it's not good. There's no way of looking at this and saying this is a good thing. Is it preventable? Sure. But... Uh, are people going to prevent it? Probably some of them. And this is, this is where we are today. So just be aware of that. Supply chain issues are getting worse. For this, I, I really get uncomfortable with this because it gets into po politics so quickly. One of the biggest areas for economics is just focused on demographics. What are the ages? Uh, what's the income levels? Uh, where are they? What kind of jobs are they getting? What's their education? And now there's another factor 
it's pure economics, but people can make it into politics really fast. And that is whether or not they're likely to be vaccinated. And those numbers are coming out and we use them because they're predictive. And one of the things that we're finding is that truck drivers fall into a demographic that's not likely to be vaccinated. That's probably not a big surprise for a lot of you out there. They're also in a demographic that gets exposed to a lot of people, which means right now in the nation, we have a lot of sick truck drivers. And this is bad on any scale you want to look at, at the micro, macro, it doesn't matter if you're talking about personal or corporate. It means that it's taking longer for things to be delivered. A lot of the grocery stores have empty shelves again, and people are going, are people stocking up? Is that what's going on? We're not seeing the kind of rush to, to hoard things like we did in March of last year. It's just not, we're not seeing a big increase in purchasing at the grocery stores. We are seeing a decrease in deliveries. The delivery schedules are being completely skewed. That means that the grocery stores are going to be in a pinch because they're not going to have the items that they need to sell. And it's not just grocery stores, but that's the place that you're likely to see it the most. Because when you show up in a grocery store, it's easy to see an empty shelf. Okay, so that's the single biggest thing in the economy right now. Knowing that that's going on, that we are likely to have at least a slowdown because of this in our growth in the third quarter. Because there's no way you can't. If you've got shortages at the grocery store, it's an indicative of a slowdown in the economy from what we were a quarter a year ago. Um, it's probably still much, much, much faster than it was a year ago. So just keep that in mind. It's part of the recovery. We talked about this last week. It's one of the bumps in the road. I'm going to get to some questions that I have now. I've got three of them hanging out there. Roger, thank you for your email. This was uh, two days ago. He sent me a question for the radio and a suggestion that we talk to the folks at Town Square about uh, a programming issue that they were having. Hopefully we, we can get that fixed. The message has been passed. Uh, the question that you had what do you think about Biden approaching OPEC to decrease to decrease gasoline prices? Seems a little absurd. Wouldn't it be better to improve U.S. production and transportation? That's a great question. Um, for some reason, OPEC is political. Well, for some reason. It's really easy because it's a conglomerate of political organizations that own oil. While the United States... Oil is only political when it's in Washington. The most decision-making on oil in the United States takes place in hundreds of different conversations in different companies. Because we still have a new industry in fracking. It's had a lot of consolidation with oil wars between Saudi Arabia and Russia and the pandemic hitting and a lot of companies going out of business. And then you add to that some of the issues that took place during the uh, the, the Texas freeze, the uh, freeze apocalypse of, of 2021. They put oil companies out of business. You're like, why would that happen? Uh, we talked about this before uh, for lots of reasons. Energy companies were hit hard because of the prices that were charged uh, for energy. And if they weren't producing the energy at that moment and they had to provide it, then it put a lot of people out of business. So when Biden goes to OPEC, it's because they're a block that with just a few people making decisions can change the prices. 
there's no real way that he could go to all of the oil producers of the United States except through a, like a televised broadcast and say, please produce more or whatever. OPEC is going to do what OPEC does, but Biden approaching them is more a diplomatic move to keep relationships open with OPEC because they do have the ability to change the price of oil and gasoline. Uh, as we saw when Saudi Arabia and Russia went to fisticuffs over it last year, and I realize most people are completely unaware that that happened, that we had a full-on oil war for about six months last year in the middle of the pandemic, and it really ripped Russia and Saudi Arabia up. The frackers were hit pretty hard, too, and we didn't have a whole lot of governmental support for them during that process. I mean, we had normal pandemic relief, but it didn't take into account that both Saudi Arabia and Russia were saying they were trying to put as many frackers out of business as they could. Uh, and it could be that they designed it just for that, that they said that they would take whatever they would take as far as losses to put as much of the Texas and uh, North Dakota oil patch out of business. It didn't work because a lot of Oil companies have learned from the past and had cash on hand and just bought up a bunch of the bankrupt companies. So that's what I, when I was talking about consolidation, that's what was going on. So is it silly for Biden to approach OPEC when we get the vast majority of our oil from us? How would approaching oil, uh, OPEC to decrease gasoline prices seem reasonable at all? Well, Trump did it. Obama did it. Bush did it. You just keep going back. OPEC is who you approach when you say, hey, it's, it may be easy to get a decision from them or at least easy to get a, a flat no from them. Uh, and just keep that in mind. So it is silly. It is absurd. We, at least for our own purposes, are energy independent. We do import some, but our prices are impacted by theirs. Check the prices of oil and you'll see that the, the price that we have in the United States is several dollars a barrel less than what they have in the rest of the world. And that's because we price our own oil in our own way because we're the purchasers and the suppliers. Uh, there's more of it. We don't have to ship it across the, the world. It's right here. Okay, so we've got two more questions out here and I've got a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about. A massive amount of stuff from... Um, the GDP demographics, what's been going on in cryptocurrency hacks and, and scandals and thefts, um, what's happening with quantum computing, lots of stuff. Probably the biggest item, all that stuff sounds exciting, but the biggest item is about taxes and the changes that may be occurring, the new budget coming out, and the infrastructure bill. And we'll get to that sometime this episode. Okay, so we got two questions hanging out there from John. Different emails sent an hour apart. The first question is on future returns. And, and the, the statement he has on here is, I realize that this is only one prediction, but your thoughts, please. And as is customary for John, he's taken a picture of the paper version of the Wall Street Journal, sent it digitally to me so that I can verify it in my digital form. He has, with a pen, circled a paragraph. Uh, the paragraph is... Morningstar Investment Management forecasts that U.S. stocks will average just 1.3% annual returns for the next decade, while domestic bonds will return 1.8%. Other analysts are more optimistic, but hardly anyone sees stocks doing as well as they've done in, the, in recent years. Stocks return 14.7% annually and bonds 3.4% in the 10 years ending 
June 30th. Okay, 14, almost 15% annualized return for a 10-year period in the stock market. That's way above normal returns. So what Morningstar is doing is doing what is a very conservative approach to giving uh, an estimate for future returns. They're, they're, they're using the concept of reversion to the mean. It means that we've had a long-term average and we're way above that average now. That means that we're going to have some period of lower returns in the future. It's a pretty decent way of making predictions. It's a pretty good way of setting your expectations. Even if they're wrong, it's a good expectation to set. Even if we get much higher returns, if you set your expectations on those low returns, you'll, you'll feel better about things. Uh, uh, when things come in at better than that, it'll be a good surprise rather than lower than that, which is a bad surprise. Now, 1.3% annual returns, that's less than bonds, what they're saying. What are my thoughts on it? Well, I don't agree. I think they're being too conservative on the stock side and, and too aggressive on the bond side. They're predicting that bonds return will be higher than stocks for the next 10 years. Th there are some very fundamental mistakes in that logic. Uh, and this is one of those things that I would actually like to hear what they actually said at Morningstar rather than what the reporter wrote down that they said at Morningstar. And this is something I'll go to Morningstar about this and figure this out for next week. Because the reality is that it's really hard long term to get a higher return from bonds than stocks. It's just really, really, really hard. Why? Because the bonds are debt issued by the same company that the stocks own. And if the bonds return better over a 10-year period, it means that those companies are going into a great deal of debt and paying a great deal of interest rate. And that's going to be what's lowering their stock returns. Healthy companies generally don't do that. So just keep that in mind, that there's some basic problems with the, the thing here. Also, Morningstar hasn't been making these predictions for very long, as opposed to some of the larger investment banks. Morningstar has started making uh, its forecasts for the stock market and bond market only in the last few years. So the people that are doing it, their entire lifetime has had a lowering interest rate environment, which causes them, causes the, the bond portfolio to do better. I know that seems backwards. We've covered that in the past. And if somebody really wants to know about it, this week, we'll talk about it. If so, send me an email. Otherwise, I'm just going to say when interest rates go down, bond prices go up. It's supply and demand. Um, and and it, it isn't caused by interest rates going down that bond prices go up. Just like interest rates going down isn't caused by bond prices going up. They are a result of purchasing and selling of bonds. If you're buying a lot of bonds, the people selling them can lower the interest rate because there's enough money coming in. I said I wasn't going to explain it. I'm doing it anyway. If there's lots and lots of people willing to lend money, they start competing and lowering interest rates. If there's lots and lots of people willing to borrow money, interest rates tend to go up if there's fewer people willing to lend the money. So when interest rates go down, it means all the other bonds that are hanging out there. Somebody made a loan and now they want to sell that loan to somebody else. They want to say, they'll owe you instead of me. Here's the payment, all of that. And the person that's buying it says, but wait a minute, this loan over here has a higher interest rate. Why would I buy yours at a lower interest rate? Which causes them to pay less for the lower interest rate loan. So when 
interest rates go up, existing lower interest rate bonds go down in value. You just can't get as much money for them until maturity. So it would mean that we would have to have a rising or, or a, a, a lowering interest rate environment for the next 10 years. And I just don't see that happening. So do I have problems with Morningstar's forecast for the stock and bond market? Yes. And the only way to be able to verify if I'm right or if they're right is in 10 years. So I could just flatly say they're wrong and uh, I'll back that up with um, some kind of monetary thing that nobody's ever going to look back 10 years. Um, I would say they're, they're wrong, but they're wrong in a way that I kind of agree with and that it's good to set your expectations low. Um, there's another thing they've already taken um, inflation out of it. So they expect a 1.3% return on your investments in the stock market over the next 10 years. I, I tend to think that's a bit low. I would think it's probably closer between 3 and 4% after inflation has been taken out of it, a real return of that. And that's a pretty normal decade-long return after a really good decade. It's just, that's, we see that a lot in history. Next question, 40-year bull market on bonds. It's like your question kind of guessed what I was going to answer on your last question. Um, he's got another section of the Wall Street Journal circled we have conviction that the 40-year bull market for bonds is over. Inflation risks will prove more than transitory and rates will be higher by the end of the year. Um, let's see who's saying this. Uh, it doesn't say. It doesn't say in this easy way. But skeptics on rates lift bonds. Um, a lot of people are making bets saying interest rates are going to be going up so the bull market in bonds is over. Um, a lot of people are saying it's because of inflation it's just part of the normal cycle. Inflation, and this is something I'm getting a lot, when, when the Federal Reserve is saying inflation is transitory, uh, what are they talking about? Um, we got to take a step back and say, how, how has inflation existed in the past? A lot of people that listen to this program were alive in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, why do I know that? Because I know the demographics of our listening audience. Uh, those of you that weren't should know this anyway. If you don't, this will be a nice primer. In the late 70s and early 80s, we had runaway inflation. And by runaway, I don't mean like Brazil runaway. We had double-digit inflation, though. Every year, it was 12 or 14 or sometimes 18% inflation. That meant that if you had a dollar one year, it bought a lot less the next year. It meant that you needed more dollars to buy the same thing every year. Over and over again, people were buying their birthday and Christmas or their Christmas presents in February and in April because they knew the prices were going to be higher in December. And they were because they were buying things in February and in April. Uh, this is something during that time period, there were all kinds of ways of trying to beat the Christmas crowd and get, get it first before the prices go up. During the Christmas season, it was normal for prices to go up, not to have Christmas sales. Those of you that remember the Cabbage Patch Kids and Tickle Me Elmo know that after they were introduced, the price went up on those things versus what's more likely to happen today on big screen televisions, on computers, on electronics, is that you have a big sale at the end of the year. That has a tendency to keep prices down. Why is it that electronic, why are electronics prices lower 
year after year? Well, because we have better ways of manufacturing. And there's lots of news on that that we can get into. Better ways of manufacturing with fewer people. This comes back to productivity. Uh, or with cheaper labor, which is what we did by going to China decades ago. Well, it looks like a lot of the chip manufacturing that, that furnaces the, the, uh, the, the foundry of electronics, they're coming back here and they're going to be automated. Those chips, the, the, the technology and how we produce them, it's getting easier and easier and easier to make those things with, elect with automation. It's certainly not easy to make, by the way, if you try to do it by hand. Um, and there's some good things to watch on that. I mean, and, and I realized that you had a question on interest rates in the bull market on bonds. It's all related to the same stuff. Uh, if we have a rising interest rate environment going forward for the next 40 years, like we had a lowering interest rate environment for the 40 years before now, the 40 years before that had a rising interest rate environment, and the 40 years before that had a lowering interest rate environment. You'd almost think that this was like a cycle or something. Wait, it is. It's an interest rate cycle. Aha! They happen. They happen throughout history. Um, and, and they end in things, uh, well, end. One portion of them have events like the Great Depression happening and other ends of them have things like the runaway inflation of uh, the early 1980s. Well, wait, think of that. The Depression, 40 years later, we had deflation, massive runaway deflation in the Depression. You add 40 years to it, you get late 80s or, or late 70s, early 80s, where we had runaway inflation. It's a normal part of our cycle. Just expect it. We had some deflation over the last several years. It's not runaway and we avoided a major catastrophe that could have been like a, a repeat of the Great Recession or of the Great Depression in the Great Recession. It didn't get as bad as that and there's lots of reasons why. Technology is improving. That increases productivity. It means that we can do more with less people. Uh, in some cases, no people at all. The manufacturing of a chip, it's almost never that a hand comes in contact with that chip. And it isn't actually a hand. It's a hand in a glove. Uh, and sometimes those are gloves inside clean rooms that go through walls instead of just on their hands. It's, it looks like a scene from some type of epidemic movie or pandemic movie where they're like dealing with something in an incubator and if it gets out, it's going to kill every. No, it's what would get into the chip manufacturing. We're dealing at a very small scale and we're about out of time for this hour. Uh, we got lots more to talk about next hour. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we do have fiduciary investment advice available. We do investment management as well. Uh, voicemail locally during the weekend, real live people during the week, uh, is 254-947-1111. You can reach us toll free if you still have a landline at 1-800-914-7526. Uh, that's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's there are recordings of the radio program going back lots of years. There are links to podcasts. You can contact us through the contact form or Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.